Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The risk of giving in to temptation is as old as humanity, but there are reasons to think that people today are having to work harder to resist it, particularly when it comes to consumer behavior. Digital technology has made it easier and faster to buy goods and services in an instant without the delays of processing that once comprised an inbuilt cooling-off period. This might sound like a headline from today's papers, but in fact it was from an article in the Financial Times published seven years ago, almost to the day. At a time when Klarna was around, yes, but only just beginning its global expansion, when a firm was only two years old, and Afterpay just a few months old. Welcome back to How to Lend Money to Strangers, the podcast about consumer lending strategies across the credit lifecycle and around the world. Today we're back in the Philippines with a different sort of an episode. This morning I had the pleasure of chairing a panel discussion for TransUnion as part of their Big Data Summit. And since the topics that we discussed included buy now, pay later and alternative credit scores, two topics that are already popular on the show, I thought I'd take the opportunity to record our discussion and turn it into this episode. I was joined on the panel by Michele Tucci of Credo Labs. Credo Labs work with neobanks, challenger banks, BNPL, any digital lender really, to build alternative data credit scores to help increase access to credit. And Michele is their chief product officer. Michele has held product management, business development, and international consulting roles, and has delivered projects in 51 countries around the world. He was joined by Andre Marquez, Head of Provenier Sales for Asia Pacific. Loved by startups and trusted by Decacorns, Andre and his team help institutions to adapt to a digital first world where everything is instant. Like Michele, he's internationally experienced, having previously held roles as a strategy director and worked across Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and the Americas. And we also had Annette Anthony, TransUnion Asia's Head of Digital Products. Annette has spent over 18 years in the technology industry in Asia and North America and has been involved in several digital transformation projects for retail banking, but also for telco and retail. So with guests of this caliber, I think you can see why I couldn't resist turning this discussion into an episode. Join me in a second for that. Anes, I'm going to go to you first. I started with that article from seven years ago, mainly to underline the fact that the sort of striving for instant gratification, for instant approval isn't something new. This is this is a much more human desire. As soon as we could go digital, people wanted to go faster and smoother. Perhaps now, just that we're at that point in time when it's a realistic prospect for, for lenders. Maybe before we start talking too deeply about who's uh, doing a great job of delivering instant approval and kind of the risks inherent in meeting demand for instant gratification, can you just give us some context of what do we mean when we talk about instant approval? 
when we talk about instant gratification? What does that look like in terms of a product scenario? When I look at this from a, from a consumer's standpoint, not just in the Philippines, here are some of the expectations that we have, right? What really is instant gratification? How does that actually play out in the real world? So imagine I'm on a shopping site and you know I've added stuff to my cart and I, I get a message that says, if you have this card, you get about 10% cash back. I don't have that card, but I'd like to get that 10% cash back. I've made a substantial purchase, right? But you know it flashes at you and it says, okay, if you don't have the card now, apply now. So if I want to now click on that, I go through the credit approval process in a few minutes, get back the card number, the CBV number, the expiry date. I use that to complete the transaction and then avail that 10% cash back. So that to me is instant gratification, right? And I'm going for lunch today, right? So can I get that card approved, the plastic embossed, give it my hand? In the meantime, I call my friends and then pre down for lunch using this card. That to me is instant gratification, how do we make things like this possible? I don't think we're too far from that. Just maybe months away from that. And cash, right? Cash is more important because I was talking to Moneyland in Hong Kong. And he's actually saying when people actually go to them for cash, they need the, the cash today. They need it instantly, right? They're not going to wait for weeks. When they go to banks, they say, oh, they need to submit address proofs and uh, income proofs. And it takes a week, a couple of weeks. And instead, they'd rather go to you know Moneylenders, give them the cash instantly, even though the interest rates are higher. And BNPL, uh, not to forget, Brendan, you mentioned that. But I'm sure uh, the other panelists uh, can also talk about that in a bit more detail. Yeah, thanks, Annette. And speaking of BNPL, that's obviously a field that Provenir know better than most. And we're lucky to have Andre Marquez here from Provenir. So, Andre, I'm going to hand over to you. And maybe if you could start by just giving us a quick introduction of Provenir, what you do there, and then talk us through these demands that you see from BNPL, as well as any other fintechs and lenders that are that are out there trying to meet that increased demand for speed that we're seeing from consumers. Sure, Brendan. Thanks for that. And, and Provenir, for those who don't know, is a company that makes smarter decisions faster by simplifying the risk decisioning process. But what allows us to do that is a no-code, cloud-native SaaS approach. We have over 2 billion transactions per year, and that allows us to help both fintechs, financial institutions, and payment providers across more than 40 countries around the world. Um, this includes companies such as BBVA, GM Financial, Hitachi, but also BNPL, providers such as Klarna and Zilch. To your point of how we help our clients, I guess, in, in this case, I, I would highlight four things, Brenda. The first thing is we're reducing the application processes from days to seconds. That's achieved with an instant automated risk decisioning workflow. The second is reducing the reliance on IT teams in order to be able to make significant changes in your processes to launch new products, and that's achieved as for our no-code technology. The third one I would call out is the simplification of the integration to an increasing number of third-party data sources, and I'm, I'm sure uh, Michele will have a chance to talk a bit about the importance of those as well. But more and more as we go forward, and you're looking at connecting to bureaus, but also KYC, AML, alternative data sources, and open banking. And that just increases how much uh, complexity you'll have to manage on your own. We provide a one-stop hub that brings together more than 500 partners, including TransUnion and Credit Lab. And that minimizes not only the effort to integrate and manage those, but also takes a, what I would say is a headache from the internal organization. Finally, I, I would call out scalability. We're a cloud-native provider 
we also build commercial models to match what are the needs of clients from the moment they incept until they become a, a decacorn status, which gladly we can call out for several of our clients. Thanks, Andre. And if you were to put that into more practical terms, what are some companies that maybe we've heard of that are doing this really well? Happy to. Let, let me just maybe for a bit of context, I mean, what I would say makes typically common link between all those examples is really the focus on meeting customer expectations. You'll see today, especially driven by millennials and Gen Zs, that there's really an expectation for instant everything. And so just giving two simple data points on this, 80% of customers today rank speed as a key buying factor, and 76% of customers around the world are more likely to make a purchase if an easy, simple payment plan is offered at the point of sales. And this actually brings me to my first example, buy now, pay later. And, and I can talk here maybe a bit about Klarna, a leader in the space and one of our clients. Klarna was a pioneer in what I would say is providing tailor-made BNPL offers, not just BNPL specifically, to their customers. This is something they were able to do early in their journey because they adopted advanced decisioning solutions to both actually their customer onboarding processes, but also their merchant onboarding processes. Because of this, they were able to perform risk analysis and decisioning as per data provided by the front end, and they were able to return immediately with a decision that was not just fast, but custom tailored for that specific consumer. The second example I would give is in a different space, is in secret lending. I'm going to tell you a similar story from one of our clients, Instabank. So Instabank is a disruptor, I would say, in Norway, where they, a few years back, basically announced the ability for their customers to get, in less than a minute, a loan approved and specific offers designed for those customers. And they did so with minimal information requested. To me, this is more than a product. Was there a differentiation point to the market? And the reality of that is they have since grown their lending book to more than $150 million dollars. This is a fantastic story of how, in this case, a challenger, but I don't see a reason why that couldn't be an incumbent player, was able to shake up the market. This was possible also because of the agility of systems. And while I don't want to trump too much on systems and how we are, are a strong solution provider that can be used, but really the challenge that Instabank had to fix before doing this was to replace a legacy system that relied on thousands of lines of code that didn't provide them the flexibility to move forward. The third and final example I would give you, I guess, to this, Brandon, is credit cards. And I know Anit touched a bit on this as well. One of our global clients that's focused on consumer lending, and I would say is positioned as a digital bank, and their focus was to have a credit card, I would say as a part of attracting customers into their bank. Their view was simple. Customer experience needed to be focused on speed and digital. With this, the result was quite straightforward, was we need a digitally seamless, available credit card application process. So in a nutshell, clients expect to be able to apply and immediately get a credit card. As per Anit's example, we were actually able to deliver a decision response in less than five seconds, despite more than 20 third-party integrations and more than 5,000 business rules, as well as machine learning models. And, and I think that's really the challenge you need to be able to consider if you want to get into a world now of instant gratification. 
So in my introduction, I read that passage from the Financial Times as a reminder that the search for instant is fairly well established. But as you were speaking there, you helped crystallize something in my mind when you brought up the idea of incumbents versus disruptors. Because for a while now, lenders have been able to offer instant in the form of pre-approved loans or shadow offers that were sitting in the background. But they could only do that to existing customers because they would look at the data of the existing customers and then decide what they would lend if they were asked. But for the bulk of people sitting outside the organization, they couldn't. Now, that gave incumbents an advantage because incumbents had customers. And it was very hard for a disruptor to grow because they kind of needed to bring customers on board and then they could only offer those customers the best possible experience. And particularly if I think like a a country like the Philippines, logistics were just holding back that growth. So if a customer had a credit card, they were on the credit bureau, sure, you could offer them a digital experience that could be very fast approaching instant. But the bulk of people weren't there. And to try and service them, to try and bring them on board, you had to rely on either very unreliable or very expensive processes to to get the word out. But now the industry is starting to get its head around alternative data, thanks in part to to companies like Credo Lab. So, Michaeli, let me bring you in here. And can you talk a bit about what alternative data and the scores powered by alternative data bring to the table, even when you look at a market that has a strong credit bureau, has very predictive credit bureau scores? Yeah, uh, thank you, Brendan. And uh, thank you for um, to, to you from, for uh, having me here. Having credit bureau scores, credit bureau data is important. Uh, as Credolab, we are not advocating for uh, changing that. We position ourselves uh, as well as other alternative data providers and alternative score providers as complementary. So uh, traditionally, you had a uh, credit history, and that was good to assess existing customers, to assess the uh, credit worthiness of customers that are known to the credit bureau. But there is, uh, you said uh, just now, and um, Andre as well, what if the customer is new to the bureau? How do you provide an instant uh, gratification? And how to uh, bring those customers into the bureau without them having to go to pay their lenders, for instance, or to uh, illegal lenders? So the two sets of data work really well together. Uh, They complement each other. Uh, Of course, uh, the predictive power of alternative data is higher where there is no credit bureau data or there is a thin file. But the uplift uh, in terms of marginal uh, Gini points is also important on the bureau population. And the reason is that uh, we are assessing two different components of the same customer, the same applicant. Uh, the Bureau tends to focus on the ability to repay. When we look at Credolab's data, we focus more on the behavioral aspect. We focus on the willingness to repay. So when you combine the two, affordability and ability to repay, with uh, the willingness to repay, you have a stronger assessment of that particular individual. Also, I'd like to bring in examples of tech companies that claim to have a lot of data. You can think of Grab or uh, Traveloka, for instance, in Indonesia. No massive consumer brands that offer a lot of services to customers, and they are all into buy now, pay later now. Uh, they're offering unsecured loans to their customers. 
And yet they are using Credo Labs technology to compensate the lack of data that even they have for their own customers. So you have transportation, you have wallet, and you have food delivery type of data. How many customers are generating enough data across the, the three services to be able to be used for uh, credit assessment purposes? I'm not going to disclose the information, but it's not as high as you think. So uh, buy now, pay later as well. Imagine Traveloka welcoming a new to app user. They have no travel history. They have no e-commerce purchases they can rely upon to make uh, an assessment. This is just like a thin file or no file at all with the credit bureau. So what do you do? Are you going to uh, close the door in front of this customer or are you going to give them a chance to uh, be part of the ecosystem? And that's where we come in. I believe Credolab is a facilitator for uh, financial inclusion, but it's also a facilitator for uh, personalization, for uh, better customer experience. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point as well, because those of us that have grown up in the traditional data world, we would look at a consumer and the data would be very structured. It's a certain number of fields and they're all fully populated every month. Whereas now in the big data, alternative data world, you might have a customer who's got three or four uh, sets of one type of data, but none of another, different exposures to different services. And you're pulling all sorts of little fields, so none of them are going to be as strong necessarily as something like delinquency, but you've got so many that you can still build a picture, but you need to think about it a bit differently. Uh, you, know, it's not, you don't just look at it in a big grid like you used to. You've got to play around. Andre, Michele brought up BNPL again now, and maybe we can pause briefly on that. You've got a lot of exposure provenant to the BNPL industry. Can you maybe just start with a little bit of a, a sort of a, a dip into the market? What's the market looking like right now, both, I guess, locally, if there's uh, news in the region and, and internationally? Absolutely. It's an area we're proud to do a lot of work on. And, you know, it, it's, I guess, unexpected by most how fast it's been growing. There is predictions that it will grow still 15-fold the current volumes by 2025. And I think that's clearly calls out the first uh, naysayers that thought the industry was a short-term trend. The recent deals, I guess particularly Square buying Afterpay at $29 billion and both PayPal and Goldman Sachs making inroads at, at more than $2 billion each are, are clear indicators that there is value to this. And, and I think a lot of that value comes beyond and above what the NPL is as a specific service. It relates more to the ability to match customer expectations right now. I think another interesting point that we can see at this stage is how you start seeing specialization within BNPL providers. So there's things like BNPL offers for vet care, for rent relief, utility bills, way and above what were the original purchase uh, use cases. Another area I would like to highlight, I guess, is regulation, right? It's, it's been early days and regulation bodies are still looking into how they're going to do it. But if there is one thing that seems more or less consistent and, and everyone can align to is that regulation is imminent. On the long term, I think this, this will be an, a clear fact uh, and the focus will necessarily be on credit safety, which will force retailers, consumers, and I would say providers to work together to make sure customers' interest is at heart. This will necessarily and once again force some changes, and the ones that have not prepared for it will probably struggle. Another point I would like to highlight, you know, because as you said, there's a lot of headlines on this 
industry, but I'm not sure everyone sees the non-success stories. I think that's a, an interesting point to keep in mind as well. I would say some are no longer with us. Others, you can see struggles. And to your point, I would give an example from the region. Just earlier this week, Hula, a BNPL provider in the region, um, headquartered here in Singapore, but with presence in other markets, have announced both the exit of the current CEO, but also cutting jobs as they head for a restructuring effort. Looking back, I think there's a few interesting points I would like to call out here, and I only have an outsider's view to this story, but you would see Hula been visibly quite focused on growing their merchant network, and I would say expanding within the region. And as they've done that, they've been also building their own technical solutions while betting on what I would call is a simplified risk management approach where one fits all. I, I can't stop wondering if this is a matter of too many fronts diluting their attention. But lenders will be looking at that, those growth numbers, those sale numbers you've just mentioned. And when you look at the idea of buy now, pay later, logistically, it seems not that different to what we've been doing in the past. And be wondering, can we achieve something from this as well? So when financial services seek to follow that path, what are some of the pros and definitely some of the risks that they take on board and need to think about managing? Oh, absolutely, Brandon. And there are certainly a s- several commonalities here that I don't think are specific to a fintech focused on BNPL alone. I think a traditional bank would face the same. The, the main one I would necessarily highlight is customer experience. We're in a millennial Gen Z generation world where Spotify, uh, Netflix set the expectations of experience and instant gratification. I would dare to say that it's important that providers don't dictate the terms to the customers. It's important that we use data to get insights on how to better serve them. This is a case where we need to think of rewriting a bit the script of how to meet the needs of the new generations, as well as how they think and feel about credit and access to financial products. Just in 2020 alone, there was an increase of 63% of financial app usage. That said, it's not just about the digital experience, but it's also matching the customer expectations of engagement. The front end and the back end talking the same language, if you want. The other thing I would say is the access to data. The access to data has exploded. And so this has created a completely different ways that data can be accessed, but also explored. You have every second... 7,000 tweets, I think 30,000 Facebook likes. But if you look at a traditional bank platform, it can equally generate a million transactions per second or 100 billion per day. The amount of data that's created, it's fantastic and to a certain extent hasn't been fully explored to the advantage of customizing the customer experiences. This to me is really a key point and, and as financial institutions have this massive opportunity to, to provide real-time engagements that match what customers are looking for. Yeah, and I think that's probably the area that's going to be the biggest stickiness. Now, I don't want to sort of besmirch the whole banking industry. We know they've made a lot of strides recently to deliver better customer experiences. But in painting in broad strokes, we would normally think that fintechs are the people that are great at delivering experiences, that are great at trialing out new data types. They're less constrained by their investors. They're less constrained by regulation and reputation risks. So that's where we'd expect experimentation. They're also out to win customers from someone else often. So they tend to be focused on delivering great experiences. But 
on the other hand, banks have lots of cheap capital. They have existing customers. They have good reputations. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Michaeli, if I can come back to you here. Why don't we see more partnering, or easy partnering at least, between big established banks who maybe can reach out and work with a fintech to get the best of both worlds? It depends on how politically correct you want me to be, right? I think the biggest hurdle that at least we face as a small company pitching the large client uh, like a bank is the level of scrutiny that we receive from compliance, from info security, scrutiny also around data governance, uh, data ethics. Uh, in the Philippines in particular, we've been approved already five times by BSP, uh, not because we had to, uh, but it was easier for the bank to uh, get approval from BSP. So we went through the process. We are now ISO certified, which is an overhead for us, but it helped uh, to go smoother through the onboarding process. So I think what is preventing more banks from partnering with fintechs is uh, internal processes, uh, which are there to protect the bank, and they should be there. I'm not arguing that they should be uh, removed, but there, if there were a sandbox within the bank to test a new solution to make sure that it complies, I think it would be faster uh, for the bank itself to appreciate the kind of improvements that they can bring in if they partner up. Uh, there are also some instances where uh, banks are willing to build versus buy. So they believe, I don't know why, that it would be faster for them to build the solution rather than uh, buy it from a SaaS business. Uh, there are neo banks coming into the Philippines. We know of Tonic, we know of Time Bank. And they are already launching lending product. Why? Because they realized that offering deposits alone is not enough to be profitable. And the banks are already profitable. So if they were to allocate a particular product to a probably a riskier segment or a younger segment, uh, that's where they could be partnering with fintechs to uh, showcase uh, how well something can be executed in partnership rather than alone. And we have two partners here. We have TransUnion, we have Provenir. Another way that banks could be partnering with more fintechs is to just leverage what capabilities TransUnion or uh, Provenir have already built into their offering. 
So if the bank trusts the due diligence that TransUnion has done, then perhaps they would want to work with a fintech through TransUnion. And that means less paperwork and go to market faster. Um, I wish I wish things would move faster anyways. Um, speaking of TU, let me come back to you, Annette. We've spoken today a lot about the benefits of delivering instant, and we've spoken a little bit about the risks, how to mitigate those when it comes to credit, you know, building new types of credit scores with alternative data. But what about the fraud risk? Obviously, as we try and make it as smooth as possible for people to come on board, we also potentially open the door for fraudsters to take advantage. Yeah, and, and that's a good question, right? So I was just sort of waiting for you to ask me that question. So yes, that's what we're trying to achieve is instant gratification. But every 10th transaction in the Philippines is found out to be a fraudulent transaction. So think of all the data breaches that are happening, right? So identities are stolen every single day. But if you look at to the Philippines, you have like the Cathay Pacific data breach, about 100,000 Filipinos data was compromised. Facebook had about 500 million users that was hacked, and out of which 900,000 were from the Philippines. There's a passport breach. Well, so when you look at all this identities that are getting stolen, and not to mention phishing that's happening almost on a daily basis, right? And to buy all of these fake identities of people uh, online and in the dark web is, again, easy. The fraudster is getting really, really sophisticated. So you'll start to see uh, fraudsters applying with multiple ID cards with the same facial profile, for example. Right? And, and we've seen a lot of that. Uh, we've also seen applicants who apply multiple times with the same ID, but with different names. And all of that makes the match happen. This week. And the lack of security features in some of these ID cards that the banks accept, it makes it even harder. And, and relying on just one fraud provider, is it's like putting all your eggs in one basket, right? So yeah, there is a big increase in the fraud. And it is expected to go up because all the banks now have their own digital initiatives. And uh, this is a big risk that is there in front of them. Yeah, and my, my first job was in, in credit card fraud, so I, I always try and sort of remember the bank side. But as soon as you're a consumer interacting with that, it's incredibly disruptive to your life when when it, when they get it wrong. So, you know, if, if you're making an application and it gets paused because they're doing a fraud check, or as I had, I made a, a, a payment when I was moving house, I paid the, the rental deposit, and it got flagged by fraud for a warning. They sent me an SMS I didn't read for that day, so they they shut the account for a bit. And I was really annoyed because I had to phone in the bank and sort out, like try and remember old phone numbers and whatever else was in the, the ID checks. That's the downside. It, it, it makes such a bad customer experience as soon as you, you, you stop a customer. But it's obviously impossible to hit only the fraud. So how do you defend against fraudsters? What is it that you're looking for that you can catch a fraudster uh, what's giving them away, but at the same time, that's not just going to catch an innocent customer with a dirty ID card or, or something. That's right. That's right. And so when you look at the balance that we need to come up with, right, between instant credit and being able to catch fraud, and the problem there, though, is affects the customer experience. It's going to add a lot of friction in the process. The good ones go away as well. Now, you're trying to catch the bad ones, but the good ones are going away as well. So now, how do you strike that balance? So you'll need to do very reliable fraud checks, but you'll have to do them discreetly without hindering the consumer's experience. And that's where, you know, at TransUnion, we'll be looking at ways and means to do this, right? Not just in the Philippines or in APAC, but also across different regions. Now, how do you do that? So one of the things, yes, we have a face scan and we have an ID scan, we try to match them, you're always going to get the false positives and false negatives, right? You need to add layers and layers of defense, right? 
uh, one of the best ways that, that, you know, to me is the device. You know, at times it might not even be a human appliance. So it could be bots, it could be simulators. Now, now one thing that gives the fraudsters away is really the device. Chances are that he might use one, two, or three, or five devices to do all his fraudulent activities. You know, we can actually pick up things like velocity, how many applications were made from this device? What is the longevity of this device? And then is there any evidence that has been reported against this device? So there's a lot that the device gives away, a lot of information that we get from the device, totally seamless to the user. He doesn't know what's happening. So let's just say we have a layer one that does the you know, selfie scan and ID scan. And let's just say that goes undetected. It's fraudulent, goes undetected. The device is going to give it away. And not only that device, but all the linked devices to that. So you will actually be able to identify all those different types of fraud that you weren't able to detect with just a face scan and an ID scan. You can still have that, right? But you have to go beyond that. Now, what else would you check? You would check email, for example. Same things, right? What we checked about the device, you check the same attributes of the email, like what's the velocity? How frequently is this email address being used? Uh, what is the longevity? Was it created yesterday? Or was it just created for the sake of this application? You can exactly do the same thing for phone number. You're looking at geolocation. And then I think this one takes the cake for me. Uh, we also have a service that you can check whether the credentials have been compromised. So if this identity is being sold in the dark web, there is a way for us to detect that. And you also have to see whether that sort of identity exists in the credit bureau as well, right? If one layer doesn't catch it, another one definitely would. Now we look at all of these, right? Device, email, phone, geolocation, compromised credentials. There's nothing that the user needs to do. Of course, he needs yeah. to scan his face and scan his ID, but that's the only friction point. Everything else is seamless. Yeah. It's no longer the, the questions you can never remember the answer to. It's, it's, uh, it's happening in the background. And then I guess before we close, we need to address COVID. I know we're already a little bit over time, but there's no way we can ignore that really. Andre, when we look at COVID and the lessons it's taught us, how do you see risk management of the sort of large shifts that external factors can bring, be they the COVID epidemic or, as you brought up earlier, regulation? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think this is actually true for both the regulatory shifts, the, um, the pandemic, but also the ever-evolving customer expectations. What to me glues all of them together is the need to be flexible, to be responsive to those changes. And that's where, you know, you want your business teams to be able to react and not to be dwelled by limitations on technology or hard-coded rules that are difficult to change. And, and that's what, what drove our customers to success was how their business teams identified the changes required, but also were able to quickly act on it. That in a nutshell is how I would summarize that. And maybe one final example I would give, you know, the pandemic that you called out, right? Several financial institutions were forced by regulatory need even to change their credit policies. And that's something that in a traditional world with legacy systems is a three to six months project, a change request to be discussed and the need to count on a vendor to support. That, that's what really we're trying to get out of the way, make sure the business teams can directly make those changes. And one of our clients back in the UK facing this exact challenge, they were able to do it themselves and did it in just a few weeks. 
yeah, hopefully we won't ever have another thing where one week it's normal and the next week everything's changed. But we were working with a client who had to reassign laptops from one group of staff to another because not everybody that needed to work from home had laptops. And it just sort of underlined these old systems were so structured that suddenly we had to change and it was really difficult. Uh, Michaeli, the other big question about these sort of disruptions, it's obviously shaken up all our lives, but but more than anything, probably our online lives. So got more people online, got different people online. That's obviously created the potential for new data for you, but also potentially changing the data you've already got. And that may call into question things like score stability. So you building scores off alternative data. Can you talk to us about score stability? Has that been damaged in this rush to online? It's a, a tricky question. So from a data point of view, COVID has been good to us. Uh, as insensitive this may sound, but uh, uh, people have spent so much more time on their mobiles. According to Annie, uh, in Asia, people spent on average five more hours per day on their mobile phone. That meant also that they have generated a lot bigger digital footprint. Uh, on a smartphone. They have downloaded so many more apps, uh, tried different categories of apps. And so, yes, you're right. We we wondered, and our clients wondered with us how stable could have been our score in the presence of uh, such a different or uh, shifted uh, kind of behavior. And to much of our surprise as well, the score was extremely stable. We calculated also in the Philippines the population stability index of our models And uh, the worst scenario was a change in PSI of only 0.03, which meant that we didn't even have to calibrate the model. How is that possible? So you look at um, a digital footprint. We access the the permissions that we receive. We access, uh, if the mobile is three years old, we access three years worth of data. So when we identify the microbehavioral patterns that are predictive for risk, we go back uh, to not just six months or three months, perhaps like a telco would do, uh, but we go back in time and we can see how stable these behaviors are. Of course, the risk profile of these uh, customers, the incoming population was uh, a lot higher. Uh, but in terms of model predictiveness, uh, the, uh, that didn't change. So good news for us, good news for our clients. I would say if I had to make a wish was that more clients were already ready with digital channels so that they didn't have to shut down uh, branches and uh, also shut down originations. But that's uh, uh, for the next uh, pandemic, hopefully in 50, 100 years time. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, So I think that's a whole discussion on its own. I want to just close by giving the floor back to Annette. We've only got a minute or two left, but can you just try and sum up how a lender can think through such a big problem? You know, we've spoken about new data sources, new types of scores, new types of very sophisticated fraud defenses. How does that all get pulled together? What we just did in the end was that combined with our partners and come up with a solution that you don't have to do employment checks anymore. You don't have to do income verification anymore and the address verification. This guy's spending a lot of time on the office hours that location happens to be his office address and where he spends time in the night is most likely going to be his home address. Again, I'm talking about pre-COVID or post-COVID, right? So we have partners that partner with telcos to kind of give you that sort of information. All these things, right? Instant decisioning, super quick fraud checks without hindering customer experience, 
that meets that 730 rule, right? Seven minutes to apply, three minutes to process with zero human intervention. So that's the kind of thing that we're trying to offer. Things like the ability for you to ping a company email address, let's just say um, brendan at transunion.com, for example, and you provide that to the bank. The bank should have the ability to ping the email and that should be a valid email. That itself goes a long way to show that you are indeed employed with that. So employment verification call-out can be taken away that way, right? Income estimator, some of the data products that we have would help you with the income proofs. Then you're saying that, okay, employment verified, income is verified with TU's income estimator. So, you know, this actually completes the whole process of lending, which can happen. I mean, those use cases that I talked to right at the beginning can be achieved one last mile that we need to run is with Visa they, or MasterCard, our friends there will be uh, able to generate that instant card, which is still pending as part of our product, but everything else still instant decisioning is something that we already offer today. Great. Well, thank you very much. And, and thank you to everyone from the panel. And thank you for listening. This has been How to Lend Money to Strangers, the podcast about consumer lending strategies around the world and across the credit lifecycle. I've got a really good show coming up next week, so join me next Thursday for that. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 